This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today, the province is reporting nearly 2,500 people hospitalized with COVID-19 and 438 admitted to ICUs. And that is nearly double the number of people who were in, t- in intensive care last week. In the meantime, the number of healthcare workers out sick is also skyrocketing. And with so many people getting infected and so many managing their cases on their own, how to know when it's time to go to the hospital and when it is not. So uh, let me give out the numbers. If you have some questions for our emergency room docs, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in Dr. Al Golan, an intensive care doctor at a GTA hospital, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Doctors, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Libby. Nice being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, let us begin with Jamie. So, uh, first of all, how are you uh, experiencing this spike? Uh, definitely, uh, over the last week, it's been definitely an explosion of these COVID patients coming in, into our emergency room, being hospitalized, as well as coming to the ICU. But more, more on the medical floors, um, definitely... I don't know. I, I'm hoping we're reaching our peak, but over the last couple of days, and, and especially since we last spoke to you guys last week, there's definitely been a significant exponential rise in COVID patients being hospitalized, and we're seeing patients from a very all 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 age groups, um, but definitely a large portion are not vaccinated or are very immunocompromised with medications. Um, Dr. Golan, what are you finding? Uh, very similar. Um, the unfortunate reality is that the cases continue to rise and we don't know where the peak is. Uh, usually, as you know from previous waves, uh, we we get a sense of where things stand approximately two or two and a half weeks after major events like holidays or Thanksgiving or Christmas. This time it's New Year's and Christmas, and uh, this is one of the reasons they closed so many things down. We just don't know where the peak is yet, so the numbers have definitely increased. Uh, hospitals throughout the GTA are, are bursting at the seams. And that's for a variety of reasons, including this exponential growth that Jamie just described, but also because there's still a backlog from the previous waves. There's a lot of very tired people and there's less staff just for a variety of reasons. Um, so what kind of shape are most of these patients in, Dr. Spiegelman? Uh, the majority of them are uh, are coming in very dehydrated because they've been sick with like flu-like illness for a week or so. So they come in very dehydrated and a lot of them are not coping well at home, especially the elderly. And that's one of the main reasons they get hospitalized. However, um, we are still seeing a significant portion of them coming in with really bad respiratory failure requiring ICU and intubation and, and a ventilator. So it varies. Uh, definitely, definitely the vaccines work because patients that are vaccinated that get the COVID or Omicron at this point are not as sick, but they can still be sick. But they're, they usually come in very dehydrated. And definitely, I agree with Dr. Golan that the emergency rooms are backed up. Like as of this morning, we have 40 patients waiting for a bed in our emergency room to be admitted to the medical floor. Wow. So where, where are they? They're in the emergency room blocking the emergency room beds, which unfortunately is not the safest thing to do because there's always new patients coming in, but we have no choice. So uh, we're trying to discharge as many patients from the floor that have been here over the weekend. But, you know, we, we have to manage with treating them in the emergency room, in the hallways, in the emergency room at this point. Wow. Um, so here is a question. One of the things that I remember from previous waves, uh, and I don't know, is that uh, for some people, the severity kind of crept up on them, and they 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 didn't realize uh, until it was very late that they were in respiratory distress. 
Is that something you're seeing? Um, yes, it's still true. Uh, we find that uh, COVID is very different compared to a lot of other respiratory illnesses where people feel short of breath once they have like the flu or a, pneumonia, a regular bacterial pneumonia. What we find, uh, we are, and we're still seeing this with Omicron, uh, is that these patients are fine, and then we check their oxygen saturation, and it's not fine. So a normal oxygen saturation is close to 100%. A lot of these patients are calling EMS when they're feeling a little short of breath, and their oxygen saturation is in the 50s, but they're not overtly in respiratory distress. So that's 50s. quite consistent. Yeah. I thought it's a problem if it gets to 90 yeah, anything less than 90 should, is really abnormal, but definitely when you're at 50%, you're, you lack a lot of oxygen in your blood, and, and it's quite dangerous. Uh, one of the things about that, so one of the pieces of advice is uh, get yourself uh, an oximeter, a pulse oximeter. It's a little device that kind of clips onto your finger, and I checked around online, and basically uh, they're sold out. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's reasonable to do that if you if you're at risk for sure at home. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I think Amazon has sold them out. I think uh, a lot of people have gotten them during the first couple of waves. Yeah, I mean, just uh, checking around, they are not easily available. Uh, so, uh, Doctor Golan, uh, you know, are you seeing again a lot of patients who didn't realize that they're a big problem? Yeah, so to echo Dr. Fugelman's point, Omicron is slightly different in that it affects the respiratory uh, system a little bit less than previous ones, such as Delta uh, variant, but they still get quite sick. And, and the concept of the, hype, the, quote, happy hypoxic, meaning the patient does not realize that they're hypoxic, meaning their oxygen levels are low, is something that's fairly uh, unique to COVID that we before that Dr. Spiegelman described where somebody doesn't feel unwell until they're really unwell, uh, and the pulse oximeter definitely would help. Um, with micron, it's a little different because, yes, we see those as well, but we also see a lot of dead ones, the ones who are just severely dehydrated, just in hope, who just feel very... Uh, we're, you're cutting out. Uh, there's a problem with your line, Dr. Golan. So, um, Dr. Spiegelman, you're saying you're seeing more people who are dehydrated. So what should people look for if they're on their own at home? Yeah, so that was Dr. Golan's point I think he was trying to make there is that, you know, it's really like we obviously don't encourage patients that are otherwise healthy to come to the emergency room. Even if they, they just want to come for a COVID test, they should not come to the emergency room. That's not the right place to get that. Just sign up to the, one of the COVID assessment centers. There's lots of them in Toronto, especially. But I mean, yeah, I'm really sorry. Unhealthy. You know, just just to interrupt you, it is very difficult to get a test. There are new requirements, and if you're not a frontline healthcare worker or an education worker, you're not getting a test. But that being said, I think if you feel unwell, like you're having the flu-like illness, I would go to the COVID assessment centers. That's why we, we built them as a healthcare system. You may not get a test, but at least they'll be able to assess your oxygen levels. You, they'll be able to assess whether you need to come to the emergency room or whether you could go home safely. So the centers are there for a safety net for the healthcare system. Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's not what I'm what I'm hearing. But so people on their own at home, how could they tell that they're so, not doing well? If there's any question, come to the emergency room. Like there's no question about that. If you feel unwell, you feel you're getting dehydrated, you feel short of breath. You're unable to walk out of bed, get to walk to the washroom. Those are really red flags that should tell you that you're pretty sick and you should get to the emergency room. If, on the other hand, it's like a normal cold, you just have some sniffles, a cough, a sore throat, but you're able to eat and drink and you feel otherwise well and ambulating around your home, those are probably cases where you, you don't necessarily need to come to the emergency room or go to one of the assessment centers. But, of course, if there's any question, come to the emergency room. There's no question about that. Uh, what kind of a weight can you expect in the emergency room? It depends how sick you are at the triage desk, right? So patients that are really acutely sick, if you're the one that has a 50% oxygen saturation, you're going to be seen right away. If your oxygen saturation is 98% on room error, 
and you look otherwise well to the nurse at the triage, you might wait six hours. It's possible, but that's our system that we live in. Dr. Golan, do you have anything else to say to people about what they should watch for while they're, you know, managing at home? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, most people, uh, you know, everybody's doing their best and most people, you know, they're not physicians or nurses or healthcare workers or somebody can call somebody easily enough. I think you you do your best. You use as much common sense as you can. If you have, as Dr. Spiegel mentioned, something that resembles something you've had in the past where it's just a minor cold and you're curious to know if it's COVID or not, in that situation, I would say, you know, whether it's COVID or not is irrelevant. Stay home, take care of yourself. Don't come to the hospital. If, however, if anything else, you know, you're, you're, you're having a tough time breathing or even just walking up the stairs or doing minor activities, you, you, you don't feel like yourself, uh, you feel short of breath or you can't keep liquids down or you're having a lot of diarrhea or vomiting or anything where you feel like you, it's just not safe, I would say just come to the hospital. Most hospitals now, uh, even if you come to the emergency room, they have a system whereby they can either see you and emerge or refer you directly to a, a COVID assessment center or almost on the spot. So I think if you're not sure, go to the hospital. Uh, at the triage, they will see you. I would just say, don't be surprised if you are one of those who's actually doing relatively well. If you do wait a long time to be seen, and that's actually a good thing because that means you're not unwell. That means you, are, you haven't been triaged to be seen immediately. And that's a good thing. Um, some people come to the hospital and they're very frustrated that they don't have a COVID test done immediately. And and that's seen immediately and they wait a few hours and, and they leave against medical advice. And unfortunately, the system we live in is such that if the hospitals overrun, we do triage the sickest people to be seen first. So if you're not, I would just say that's actually a good thing for you. Uh, and that should be reassuring, if anything else. Okay. Uh, we're just about out of time. Dr. Spiegelman, what would you like to leave us with? Um, the one thing that I am consistently seeing in a hospital, both in the medical floors as well as in the ICU these days are patients that are getting very sick that are not vaccinated. Um, so I don't think it's too late to get your vaccine. So if you haven't gotten it yet, I would get the vaccine as soon as possible. Hmm. Dr. Golan? I think for sure the vaccine is, is the best weapon we have. But I think the other message I would give is we've been through this several times now. I would just encourage everybody to be kind to each other. I think everybody's stressed. Everybody's on edge. Uh, the unvaccinated are, the vaccinated are. I think people are pointing fingers. I'm seeing everything that's written in the news and what I actually see in the hospital. I would just, you know, emphasize we're all in this together. Just be kind. Uh, if someone's coming in, just take care of them. If they're vaccinated or not, or if they came for the right reason or the wrong reason, I don't think it really matters. I think we just have to be there together for for each other. This is going to end at some point. It's going to end sometime soon. So I think uh, this is an important time, but... I think at the end of the day, we should remember that we're all in this together. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Eyal Golan and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks. Thank you very much. We're going to take another break. And uh, speaking of unvaccinated, we will be talking about Novak Djokovic when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, that is the sound of tennis star Novak Djokovic's supporters demonstrating against his detention at a hotel while awaiting an Australian judge's ruling on his vaccine exemption. Djokovic is a polarizing figure, a vocal anti-vaxxer with all manner of unscientific beliefs. And when he was not allowed in Australia by immigration authorities questioning his exemption, it struck a chord with millions of Australians who have gone through some of the toughest restrictions in the world. Well, this morning, a judge reversed that ruling, releasing Djokovic, but the saga may not be over. He's since been posing on one of the show courts uh, at the Australian Open, which is set to begin. So what do you think? 
416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Wally Rigabon, co-host of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, right here on Zuber Radio. Hey, Wally. Hey, Libby. How are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Wally, wh- what did you make of the whole saga and the reversal by the judge? Uh, I think uh, Rafa, Rafa, Rafael Nadal probably uh, uh, probably painted the perfect picture. He called this all a circus. Um, it's 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 unfortunate in a lot of different ways. And you know, I've been following the story, following some of the comments on Twitter, and there are vociferous opinions on both sides of this debate. And when you get sports and politics mixing, uh, sometimes you get a pretty pretty powerful brew. Uh, I, I, I think people's opinions on this really come down to where you, uh, what your politics are when it comes to vaccine. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a pretty, pretty difficult divide to bridge. It, uh, there are people who see this from both sides. And it's certainly uh, everybody's got a strong opinion on it. And uh, the judge, uh, you know, there's the politics of it and there's the law. And the judge felt that, in, in accordance with Australian law, that uh, Djokovic had met the conditions for entry into into Australia. Uh, I, you know, reasonable people can disagree upon that, and the, an appeal court may disagree. And then the Australian immigration minister, as you said earlier, Libby, uh, may weigh in on this one and be the ultimate judge in 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 the final ruling in this uh, in this sordid story. Well, uh, I think that, uh, to me, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, it was a little surprising to see the prime minister get involved in this. And well, he's got an election coming up in May, from what I understand, in Australia. And uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's reading the political tea leaves, which way public opinion sits on this. And uh, I saw one commentary this morning uh, after the judge uh, made the ruling is how quickly can the uh, can the ruling party in Australia put together a focus group to see how Australians feel because ultimately politics may trump uh, may trump the law in this one, Libby. Well, uh, you know, it, it depends on the reading of the law because uh, he not to get into the weeds. He got yep. the uh, exemption based on a positive test in December. But uh, if you read down on it, it says uh, after uh, having a difficult uh, case of it, as opposed to just a positive test, which could be asymptomatic. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to get into that. But what was interesting to me is that it's the whole issue of people, I think, are really sick of seeing very wealthy celebrities Absolutely. You know, not playing by the same rules as the rest of us. And, you know, obviously they don't, but he's kind of an extreme case. And, you know, he walks around kind of thumping his chest and and saying, you know, wacky things like, uh, you know, prayer can reverse toxins. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, he's the guy for it. So, well, it- you know he's the you know he's the, the interesting part about this tournament. If he wins the tournament, he's the 21st major, the most decorated tennis player in history when it comes to major titles. So this particular tournament means a lot to him from a historic perspective. But you talk uh, you talk about uh, you know major celebrities and major athletes not being great role models when it comes to some of this stuff. There are reports coming out. I was just checking uh, Twitter just before coming on. There are reports coming out, and it's on BBC, that uh, uh, Novak tested positive on December 16th, and they are now digging up um, his calendar of events that he attended on December 17th and December 18th, some of which apparently are on. These are unconfirmed reports. I'm just, you know, I mean. Wow, I didn't even see that. This stuff's starting to come out that, you know, he tested. Apparently the test came out at 8 o'clock. Uh, the evening of December 16th, uh, and the next day he's out doing public events, and one of them without a mask on. Wow. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, what the veracity of these reports are, uh, what truth there is to them, and that certainly will take this story in a different direction if uh, if these early reports are true. 
Well, yeah, and he, of course, had that sort of super spreader tournament earlier in the pandemic. Uh, certainly, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of people with some very, very strong opinions uh, about this. Uh, it really depends which, I mean, there have been, uh, I wouldn't call them riots, but public demonstrations in Australia overnight where the police had to break up, uh, had to break up these demonstrations, uh, pro Yokovich demonstrations with with pepper spray, uh, man. It's uh, this just tennis. It's getting a little well. Bit there's out of a, there's a very large Serbian community there. Yeah. He of course is Serbian. Yes, and uh, it, it's interesting to me. And this is sort of unscientific, but uh, a lot of anti-vax beliefs seem to come from people who are either in the former Soviet Union or the former Yugoslavia. Uh, because they don't trust authority is what I hear about it. But, um, and also in tennis. I mean, there are quite a few in tennis that are anti-vax or borderline anti-vax who may have gotten vaxxed to play, but, um, you know, some of the biggest names. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, that's an interesting observation, uh, Libby. You're quite correct about that. Um, it's just it's it, yeah, it has turned into an in- international incident between you know, the Serbian politicians have stepped in and you know t- uh, and you think it, you know Novak is the num- the world's number one tennis player he's in detention you imagine the you know this guy's used to you know five star <laughs> his mother said the food was bad at that place <laughs> I mean, here's a guy in detention the world's one of the free world's him. most famous athletes free him. It's only three uh, stars. Did, yeah, I, I, I suspect uh, outside of Serbia and outside of certain places in the world, I'm not so sure how much public opinion is in favor of uh, uh, of Djokovic. I, 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 if I was, if I was to, if I was to surmise this, I would think most people are against. Uh, most people are against the way that he's handled this, and he should have taken the high road, and perhaps just uh, stepped aside and said, this is, you know, I'm uh, Australia doesn't want me here. And they found a judge that agreed with him, but he may find a prime minister and an immigration minister that don't agree with him. Uh, yeah, but he's after that. And it, it, of course, he can't he can't get a calendar slam if he's not at the open. Yeah, well, I think there's bigger there's more important things in the world, Libby, than calendar slams. There's, in the, in uh, the world, but not to yeah, him. Not to him, and that's you. I go back to the point that you made uh, right when we started this off, uh, and we go around the world, and it's in politics, it's in the celebrity world, it's in the sports world. There's rule, there's rules for all of us, and apparently there's different rules uh, if you're a little bit more privileged. Yeah, uh, or a lot more privileged. Or a lot more privileged. So, I, I mean, it's interesting what you told me because I did not check Twitter on Djokovic before this. So uh, you're right. Uh, if, in fact, he tested positive and then did unmasked uh, public events, uh, I, don't, I don't know what people are going to make of that. This is what I, and like I said, it's unconfirmed. It was on the BBC site and some of the other sites in Europe. On December 17th, he was presenting awards uh, with no mask on. On December 18th, he was doing a photo shoot, apparently with a French newspaper. He he, he showed up masked, but then he took his mask off. Uh, you know, here's a guy uh, tested positive for COVID on December 16th. You know, maybe, maybe uh, he should have been in isolation for a little while. I mean, I think those. What do you are mean, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> That's well, the rule. Yeah, well, that is the rules. But as you say, Libby, sometimes uh, some of us, uh, not not speaking about me or you, but some of us don't want to comply by the rules. And uh, what's your prediction? Where does this go from here, if anywhere? It's going to be a fascinating uh, because the politics is now going to take over in Australia. And, and uh, you know, we've all been uh, watching what's been going on in Australia for the last year, all the riots in Melbourne. It's been, you know, Australians have been pretty, pretty um, aggressive in trying to enforce their COVID lockdowns. Um, public opinion in Australia, I would think, would be strongly in favor of the immigration minister stepping in and saying, sorry, uh, but you ain't going to win your 21st one here uh, in the next couple of weeks. 
That's oh. my prediction. Okay, we wait and watch. Wally Rigabon, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And there are growing complaints and controversy over new lockdown rules for nursing homes. When there's an outbreak, and that's defined as a single case, residents are confined to their rooms with all the attendant ramifications on their quality of life and mental health. In some cases, there are few cases among residents, some of whom have started their fourth shots, and most of those cases seem to be asymptomatic. So are these measures too harsh, or is this a case where the government is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't? What do you think? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 740 And now I'd like to bring in David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Libby. Hello, Libby. Hi, everyone. So let us begin with Bill. Are these measures the right ones or the wrong ones? Well, I think you said it well in your introduction where you said uh, the government is damned if it does and damned if it uh, uh, doesn't. And it's because uh, we've inherited a system of long-term care that's not patient-centered doesn't look at what's best for the patient, but looks what's what will work for the the system. And there though and it's the the residents who are being caught in the in the middle of these uh, prescriptions which uh, uh, may be designed to help them uh, in some ways, but is certainly uh, not giving them the quality of life we would want our loved ones to have in their later years. David, is there any way around this, given that we are where we are and they're in the homes that exist? I don't think there's any way around it, but I think the government has backed itself into so many corners on this. It's difficult to, you know, cherry pick and say they should have done this instead of done that. Uh, If you're defining an outbreak as one case, uh, the absurdity that follows from that, well, what is that one case? How old is that one case? Is that one case double vaccinated and booster? Does that one case have dangerous comorbidities? Do you What do you have to fear from uh, Omicron coming into that home? And how does that relate scientifically to restrictions you're placing on the number of caregivers that can come in? I think we've long passed the point where there is science behind any of this. It's just, you know, trying to put out the fire as best they can. Peter? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the problem is, is they're not, they're not only trying to protect, uh, residents, they're also trying to protect staff because, um, you know, it, it could be, I, I think I read somewhere that up to 30% of, uh, you know, in some homes, up to 30% of staff are reporting sick with COVID. So, uh, they need to halt that spread among the staff first and foremost. And, um, unfortunately what it means is that they have to, go back a step to previous uh, measures and previous measures that hurt hurt the residents. So um, in protecting the residents, the staff who look after the residents are hurting the residents. Um, they're isolating them. You know, they're locking them in the rooms. They're not letting them walk about. So it, it's really, you know, Libby, it's really damned if you do, damned if you don't. And um, if Phillips didn't make this move, uh, he might suffer the same fate as his predecessor. Well, let me go over some of the numbers about what's going on in long-term care. So the number of homes in outbreak is 259, up from 257. Uh, The last, I think was last Thursday, was the last time they did a number. The number of homes in outbreak with no resident cases is 74. So uh, a little bit less than a third um, it's only staff. 
the confirmed active cases, positive cases of residents is, is 1,452, and the confirmed active cases of positive staff, 2,612. So I think those numbers kind of do tell the story. And uh, I found it interesting because every day of this, uh, the opposition leader, Andrea Horvath, has come out and uh, she's complaining of this or that and says the government must do this or that immediately, including hiring more staff. There's no one to hire. Um, so how did you think Phillips did? He said, we're doing this on the advice of our doctors. And as far as I know, Andrea Horvath has no medical degree. David? Well, I think that's the answer that he would prudently give a person in his uh, position. And I think that Peter touched on it earlier. If they have to protect the staff, if you just don't have enough staff, and on a related topic, I heard a news report today that they're they're running out of they're, they're in trouble with ambulances in Toronto because of of staff shortages and not being able to deposit patients at the hospitals because of shortages. So if there's a whole uh, condition of staff reporting in uh, sick and then reporting that they're getting uh, Omicron, and by definition the staff in nursing homes would be out in the community more than the residents in the nursing homes anyway, so more chances to pick this up. Uh, I, I think that if he's getting that advice from his science table, uh, he, he does indeed have to follow it, even though it sets up Bill's question of, you know, uh, the vulnerabilities in the healthcare system and the weaknesses and the under-resourcing before all of this started. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's kind of, you know, I, I'm uh, certainly over the course of this have not been a fan about of the way the government has handled it. But at this point... It's kind of, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, I can't see what else they could be doing, given that we are where we are, Bill. Well, you know, if we look at it from from the residents' point of view, from the patients' uh, point point of view, uh, is it really necessary to lock them in their rooms, not allow them to come out of their rooms? Is there not some way of of having those who are still healthy being able to gather and have some uh, interaction. Now, this kind of isolation for older people who are in long-term, uh, who are in long-term care, it's going to have a huge effect on their uh, mental mental health and create even even more problems. Well, once again, uh, governments, uh, doctors, uh, institutions, and to look at. Uh, at these things from the point of view of what can they do most easily, not what would be best uh, for the for the patients them, themselves. And we've never been sure that that's what they're doing. And, and to say, you know, frankly, that they're that they're uh, taking the advice of the uh, of, of the physicians. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, physicians are trained uh, to say. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is your problem. This is what you should do. Now good, go do it. There's not, uh, there's not interaction. There's not conversation with families. There's not conversation with the, uh, patients, uh, themselves. It's a broad stroke approach that in the long run is going to be more harmful than helpful. Peter, do you think that they should allow, you know, uh, residents who are doing okay to, uh, you know, walk around freely? Uh, do you think that's a good plan? Well, I, you know, um, I, I really do. Because, like, the, these people, um, like, a lot of them are right at the end of their lives. They don't have much time left. Um, you know, they've survived so far through the pandemic, um, you know, and, and they they don't want to spend the last uh, days or months or, or, you know, years of their life locked up in isolation in, in a nursing home without seeing anyone except for two designated caregivers. So I, I really do think, um, you know, protect the staff, protect, you know, uh, the essential workers in the home, but really our, our focus should be on improving the quality of life of these residents and, if they want to walk around, if they want to risk getting COVID, despite the fact they have, you know, four shots or whatever, let, let them walk around, you know, 
let them make the choice themselves. Let the family make the choice themselves. And it, it may be difficult to monitor, but I, I think I think Bill's right, and he's and he's really struck on something: is that we have to we have to begin looking at at the residents rather than the system, which you know everyone seems to suggest that you know this this virus is going to spread no matter what we do. And um, you know, let's look at the let's look at the residents now. David, I mean, if they do that and and they infect other people and people die, isn't that uh, a recipe for disaster? I'm just asking. Well, it it goes back to to loopholes in the science that they don't want to talk about. If I'm, I understand if I'm not vaccinated, but if I'm a resident of a long term care home and I've had two vaccines plus the booster, and I want to open the door and walk down the hall and come back. What do they think? What do the virologists think is going to happen? They can't describe it. I mean, what am I going to do? Where is this virus going to come from? Um, how am I sort of saying somebody magically, I'm going to get it and I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to transmit it. Who am I transmitting to? Someone who's also vaccinated? Um, it's just not clear what the whole mechanism is to me that they think they're preventing. And especially when they define an outbreak as one case. So it seems like a draconian one-size-fits-all. There's no uh, responsiveness to the individual needs and situations of the patients. As I said earlier, who's the guy in that room or woman? How many shots have they had? What shape are they in? Did they get COVID previously and survive? Uh, These are all questions that need to be asked if you're patient-centric. And they can be safely ignored if you're system-centric. And the healthcare system, uh, with all its struggles, has never been particularly tuned into uh, the needs of patients. It's a very insensitive, uh, bureaucratic system. On a good day, it's hard to figure out uh, how to get uh, the right treatment and forget about getting it promptly. So we're seeing all this stuff exaggerated now or exacerbated now because of this pandemic. And I think they're at the end of their rope and they're flailing around with uh, constantly changing scientific advice. I'm not blaming them, but it's really a hot mess. It's nothing, there's nothing really great you can say about what's going on. Mm, Well, that for sure. (laughs) Let's take a call from Nancy in Niagara on the lake. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Go ahead. Um, I really do enjoy your show. Thank you. And um, I, my issue or my concern is for the residents in long-term care who are left in their rooms for long periods of time. Uh, my mom was in a home in St. Catharines, and uh, she passed away last September. I'm sorry to hear but, that. Um, sorry. She was one of the residents who was locked down, and for a month and a half, she did not get a bath. Oh, my goodness. And so those are the concerns that I have. People don't eat properly. They're lonely. Um, uh, Many of them, my mom included, had dementia. And so it makes it even more difficult when they really don't understand what's going on. Um, And there was also a period of time where I could not get in. I wasn't allowed in. So um, I just, my heart just breaks for these people who are left in these homes. without being able to get out. I know it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, our, our panel is saying they think they should just be allowed to make their own decision and, and take their chances. Does that sound like a solution to you? Well, some of the people can't make their own decisions. Now, my mom was in a situation where they, they basically could not keep her in her room. She wandered all the time and that was the dementia. Um, to keep her in her room, she became very angry. And so some people are able to make their own decisions and, and some people aren't. But I think if, if they're in that environment and they are with the same people all day long, every day, I do not understand why they cannot be out in the hallways. I get it that there are staff who are out in the public and who have more, um, chance of picking up Omicron, but oh my goodness, at some point we have to, 
uh, treat these people with some dignity. We we talk about dignity and excellence and caring for these people, and I'm not seeing that. And I'm not faulting the staff because the staff that were around my mom went above and beyond. But I think there are some decisions that are being made today that are very, very detrimental to the people who are living in these long-term care homes. Absolutely. Um, it really seems like a catch-22. And Nancy, thank you so much for your perspective. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Libby. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, yeah, there you go. And there's that whole other layer. I mean, a lot of residents of long-term care have dementia. And as Nancy rightly pointed out, they cannot make their own decisions. Bill, um, what, what's well, your thought? That, that's why we have to uh, consider these questions patient by patient, uh, resident uh, by resident. There, there are uh, people need different levels of, of care. It can't be a cookie cutter approach of one, uh, you know, one, one size uh, fits all. CARP uh, has said for years that what we need is what we've called a cultural uh, change from the institutional top-down model to an individualized, almost kind of consumer-directed, if you want to use modern terms, that uh, give people who have the appropriate choice, maybe in the case of uh, the mother that our caller was talking about, then the caller should have been able to make the choice. And she's, she's the one at that, that point speaking on behalf of, of, of her mother, but choices have to be made that uh, provide autonomy for both the care recipients and the uh, providers. And as far as protecting the, the, uh, the staff, remember right from the beginning, the staff in long-term care homes have complained they haven't had adequate PPE, adequate protection, uh, for themselves, even as, as a mechanical kind. So, are we are we putting in rules and regulations now to make up for the fact that government moved so slowly in the beginning and still we hear that, that they don't feel they have the, the proper uh, proper equipment so the staff can move uh, among the uh, totally vaccinated still not showing any symptoms testing uh, testing well these residents and work uh, and, and work with them. Surely we can do that, but it really does require uh, that cultural uh, uh, change, the organizational practices, the the environment it, itself, and and the working conditions uh, for the people working with these patients all have to be all have to be changed. And we had better learn through this experience over the last two years to change this in, in the future because it's unconscionable that we're going on in this way and treating our elder loved ones this way. Let's hear from Susan in Toronto. Hello, Susan. Hi. Uh, yes, I definitely agree with, uh, is it David or I'm not sure. The Bill was just talking. person that was talking about it before. Bill, go ahead. No, no, the, yeah. the one of your people that... Yes, Bill was just talking, oh. but go ahead. We want to okay. hear from you. Um, no, a friend of mine is in Michael Guerin, and um, she, has Alpha, she has ALS. And nobody can visit her except her daughter and her um, husband. And it's hard on them. They need to be able to have somebody else to come in. And it, 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 I think it's just a no-brainer. I think it's just ridiculous. And my late mother always said, uh, she said it wasn't Alzheimer that killed Joe, it was loneliness. So um, it's a terrible thing they're doing. Okay, that's it. Thank Bye. you, Susan. Yeah. So it's, it's not just uh, people in long-term care, uh, people in hospital sure. for uh, every other reason. Uh, is, is, there a, is there a solution to this that you can see, David? Not now. I mean... Uh... After it's all over, there'll be all kinds of commissions and inquiries. But I think uh, right now, um, sitting here, you know, on Monday the 10th, I don't see him 
deciding on Tuesday the 11th, you know, to backtrack or that some new development has come in. I don't think, though, just to repeat that they re, I don't understand the science behind the severity of these restrictions inside a nursing home, um, especially to Bill's point, when they're not, when they're blanket, they're not tailored to the individual patients in the individual situations. You, you it know, it seems like a blanket draconian measure. Shut up. The doctor said so. And I don't think that's good enough, frankly. Well, it's, it's interesting what Bill said about, you know, taking each resident on a case-by-case basis. I mean, they're so short-staffed, I don't think they can do that. I mean, I think they, they are, I, I think they're probably not keeping up with the very basic caring requirements, frankly. Yeah. So wouldn't they know, wouldn't they know the condition beforehand of each resident? Wouldn't they know that Mrs. Jones in room three has two vaccines plus a booster and what her underlying medical conditions are and what the risk factors are? Wouldn't that be known anyway? Um, I guess. I don't know if 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 that is uh, the totality of taking each person's case into account. But, no, I'm just doing yeah. some basics here. I'm not. A yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you're yes. Uh, I'm sure they would. Anyway, it's a, it's it's really um, a tough one, and sometimes I wonder if they, they 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 put in measures that may have been good the last time, but aren't really appropriate for the current conditions. For sure. Let's uh, let's take a call from Barry in Brampton. Hi, Barry. Hello, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good, but I'm a little upset at the way that my wife's being treated. She's in a long-term care home uh, in in Barry, and um, uh, I don't blame the home for this. They, they are, their instructions come from the public health department, and I wonder what the qualifications they have uh, to um, to issue all these orders. Uh, but um, she's been in lockdown now for uh, uh, a couple of weeks. Um, first of all, she she wasn't allowed to stay out overnight on Christmas Day. We had to take her out in the morning, take her back at night, and then go back the next morning and take her out again to go to another another home because Christmas was split up between two homes. Wow. So that seemed absolutely ridiculous to us. It just made all kinds of extra unnecessary testing going in the building each time. And then they isolated her um, in, in a private room. She, she normally has a, uh, a shared room with, a, with another resident. Um, and, um, and, 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 and we're, even the nurses said, like, who expects her to catch COVID overnight when she's sleeping in a bed? Uh, it didn't make any sense at all. Um, they isolated her for 10 days. They kept testing her. She hates the PCR test and, and fights it like crazy um, because she doesn't really understand why someone has to poke something up into her brain. Um, and, and I wanted to say that um, although the residents are locked down because they have outbreaks in the building, the smokers... There's a, several smokers as, as residents. They get to go outside whenever they want to smoke. Really? So it's oh okay God. for them to go and kill themselves slowly, but it's not okay for res, regular people who get tested frequently and come back negative all the time. Those people have to stay in their room. Oh, wow. And I want to add wow. something else. I was on the National Parole Board for a few years. And I visited many prisons, and I can tell you that even maximum security prisoners have to be allowed exercise time every day. I believe the minimum's an hour a day. So keeping old people locked in their rooms is absolutely ridiculous. Well, uh, that's my that's my rant. I, are you? I just one Good question before we let you go. Thank you for telling us about that. But I'm assuming you're her designated caregiver, so you're allowed to go and see her. Well, Libby, that's a, that, that's another thing. My daughter, she's up in Barrie because my daughter lives 15 minutes away, and my and our daughter wanted to be her number one primary caregiver. Okay, so yeah. my daughter go, was going in to see her three times a week, and 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 taking her out. 
um, of the building. And my daughter is not vaccinated, but every time she went in, she got tested and she tested negative. So just before Christmas, Mr. Phillips decided that unvaccinated caregivers were not allowed to go into long-term care homes. And I'm going like, okay, we have a barometer. We have a rapid test system. And, and if the rapid test says I'm good to go in and the rapid test says my daughter is good to go in, why can't she go in? Rapid tests, you know, they, they, uh, if, if you test too soon, it won't even pick it up. Like you have to yeah. test at the right yeah. time. Well, I, I understand that there's a bit of a risk, but when you're getting tested three times a week, which was what, what my daughter was going in and taking my wife out, you know, to get her nails done and her hair done and, you know, and for just for a, just for a decent coffee, um, it, well, it, 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 it's beyond me why they suddenly said, oh, she can't go in. Well, she's okay? not vaccinated, if, that's why. If, if they're going to test her, they're going to test her. That's the barometer we're using. No, not really. Uh, but anyway, uh, Barry, thank you so much for your call. I'm sorry about your wife's situation. Yeah, it's well, tough. I think Mr. Phillips was new in the job and needed to flex his muscles. Okay. Thank you, Barry. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, we're basically out of time on this segment. Uh, people, you may want to hang on. We're talking, uh, taking a very different uh, view uh, of the situation after the next break. But uh, right now, I'm going to give everybody 10 seconds each, starting with Peter. Yeah, I, I just think our callers show people are beginning to get weary and frustrated uh, with, with the restrictions and uh, they're going to be with us for a while. So uh, people are going to have to grin and bear it, but uh, you can sense the frustration growing. Bill. We really have to ask uh, the folks in charge to make sure that they look at the changes that are required to stop these draconian practices right now. And David. Less than six months from an election day of reckoning, and I think it's going to be a lot of uh, rancor out there in the environment. Hmm. Okay, well, that's something that we will be talking about at, at uh, you know, a bit later. You know, the last time I checked in, uh, everybody was saying they're a shoo-in for the next time, but I guess we shall see. Thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Uh, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to a couple of emergency room docs and see what's going on with them, how they're coping, and also answer some questions, since a lot of the people who are getting this are having to manage it on their own when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.